Peaceful Parenting by Stefan Molyneux, Part 2, Practice. Parenting and General Integrity One essential aspect of peaceful parenting is, if you model, you don't have to punish. Children want to emulate their parents. This is an essential cultural and practical survival skill that evolved over countless eons. The central question is, if children are acting badly, where are they getting it from? Such bad behavior is either innate or it comes from the environment. It's hard to think of another circumstance in which we punish people for their innate characteristics. Punishing someone for the color of his skin is racist. Punishing a woman for being a woman is sexist. Punishing people for their limited brain functions is morally reprehensible. Punishing children who, by their nature, have limited brain functions for innate characteristics such as being bad is wildly anti-rational, hypocritical, and immoral. Innate characteristics, by their very definition, are not chosen. I did not choose to have blue eyes. You did not choose your natural hair color. Badness that is innate is not chosen, and therefore the child is not responsible for his or her bad behavior. Babies are unable to walk at birth. They gain the ability to do it at about one year of age. Imagine chatting with a mother at the park with her baby sitting on her lap and listening to her tell you how damn lazy her newborn was for not getting out of his crib and getting his own toys. We would view this as monstrous, right? In the development of infancy, babies strive and struggle to roll over, sit up, crawl, and then walk. It is a natural development based upon innate desires and observing their parents walking around. It happens naturally if you let it and if you show it. It's the same with moral development. Babies are born concerned only with their own preferences and desires. They don't think about the burden they place on their mothers by crying for breast milk three or more times a night. It doesn't take more than a few months for babies to start empathizing with their parents, trying to feed them back during mealtimes, for example. There is a phase of language development for toddlers that is truly mind-blowing. They seem to learn a dozen words a day, and it's hard to figure out where they're getting it all from. Children want to emulate their parents. If their parents are moral and empathetic, those children will follow that path. If their parents are aggressive and punitive, well, sadly, same. Since you cannot morally punish a child for his or her innate characteristics, since we don't do this anywhere else in society, if you believe that children are born selfish, you cannot punish them for their selfishness. If bad behaviors are not innate, which they cannot be, since innate behaviors cannot be judged morally, then they must be coming from the environment. It's nature-nurture, usually a combination of the two, but those are the only two choices. If you can't punish children for innate behaviors, what can you punish them for? Remember, children get their behaviors either from their nature or from the environment. Now, parents, to a large degree, choose the nature of their children because they are in control of the most central variable that affects their children. Do you know what it is? Do you know what choice you make that has the most effect on the nature of your child? Of course you do. 
your choice of who to make a baby with. There seems to be no aspect of personality that is not affected by genetics, and you choose half of the genetics that builds your babies. Let's say you have a predilection for nervous women. Well, you are more likely to have a nervous baby. Let's say you have a predilection for aggressive men. You are more likely to have an aggressive baby. 80% of IQ is genetic by late teens. If you have chosen an unintelligent mother for your babies, you are more likely to have less intelligent babies. If a mother is obese during pregnancy, her children are more likely to gain excess weight. Adult obesity is a choice. Punishing babies for being overweight when both the mother and the father chose obesity during pregnancy, the father because he did not work as hard as possible to ensure the mother was not obese or chose an obese woman, is monstrous. Imagine a mother who chose a very tall father for her children and then punishes her sons for being tall. In other words, you and your partner have chosen many of your baby's innate characteristics. Your baby didn't. Punishing a baby for the innate characteristics that you have chosen is beyond contemptible. And if the bad behaviors are not innate or genetic, then they must be environmental. I guess I'm just a little bit curious. Who do you think controls the environment of your baby and toddler? Did they choose your household themselves? Did they choose your family, their mother and father, the neighborhood, the house you live in? Did they choose your income, their sex and race, whether they were breastfed or not, how attentive you are, how empathetic you are, how moral you are? Did they choose whether you put them in daycare or stayed home with them? Did they choose whether or not you are stressed and distracted? Did they choose any medical issues? Did they choose whether they got hit or yelled at or neglected? Did they choose whether you loved them unconditionally? Come on! All babies would choose the best environment if they could, but all babies have to find a way to survive the environment they happen to land in. You are entirely responsible for 100% of your children's genetics and 100% of their environment. You start with being responsible for 50% of their environment and genetics because you are half of the parental team. But the other parent is only on your team because you chose him or her. If you get to choose who is on a team, you are 100% responsible for the composition of that team. Both you and your spouse are 100% responsible for your children's environment. Ah, you say, but the father of my child abandoned me when he found out I was pregnant. Right. You are 100% responsible for your child growing up without a father. The father is also 100% responsible for his child growing up without a father. Full responsibility. It is absolutely essential that you never fail to take less than 100% responsibility for your choices. Everyone who says, well, it's 50-50, is lying through their teeth. Everyone claims that things are 50-50 and then throws all the responsibility on the other person's half. Even people who claim that they are 99% responsible for something always end up blaming the other person more. 
whatever percentage you claw back from 100% responsibility will be where you end up dumping all your responsibility. Just take 100%. It's the only way to be responsible. Everything else is a cope and a dodge. Once you accept 100% responsibility for your children's environment, you are ready to accept 100% responsibility for your children's behavior. Remember, you are completely responsible for 100% of your child's genetics and 100% of his environment. Babies and toddlers are entirely run by genetics and environment. Therefore, you are completely responsible for your children's behavior when they are young. I'm sure you've had a situation at work when your boss blames you for something he or she did. Remember how frustrating and enraging that was? Welcome to the childhood of parents who blame children for their own parental decisions. I'm sure you've read about cops who plant evidence on innocent people in order to frame them and throw them in jail. Monstrous, right? Exactly. It's not your children who are bad, it's you who are bad. Projection 101. It's a lot easier to punish your children for behaviors you dislike in yourself than it is to improve your own choices. Single mothers often blame the eldest son for the anger they have against the absent father. Is that fair? Of course not. Fathers angry with mothers often take it out on daughters. Is that fair? Teachers frustrated with bored students will literally drug them with methamphetamines rather than admit their own failures as teachers. Is that fair? It's monstrous. You and your spouse control 100% of your children's genetics. 50 plus 50. You and your spouse control 100% of your children's environment. And you dare to blame and punish your children? Parenting and Moral Instruction You cannot teach anyone anything that you do not know yourself. I can't teach you how to tie a knot if I don't know how to tie it. I can't teach you Japanese if I don't know how to speak or read it. I can't teach you piano if I only know guitar. You want to teach your children how to be good? Excellent. That is the essential mission. So, do you know what goodness is? Is goodness obeying people in authority? Good heavens, I hope you don't believe that. Is goodness going through life without upsetting or offending anyone? Absolutely not. That's just setting your kids up for a life of zombie conformity and subjugation to peer pressure. Is it good to never push back against something you don't agree with? Is backtalk always bad? Is it good to give respect to those who have not earned respect? If you think it's good for your children to pretend to respect you when they do not, in fact, respect you, then you are rewarding them for lying and punishing them for telling the truth. So, is it good to lie or good to tell the truth? You can't order them to tell the truth while also demanding that they lie to you. I mean... Technically, you can do it, but it's kind of insane. Is it good to hold those in authority to the same moral standards they inflict on everyone else? Is it good to have integrity? Or better to be hypocritical? Is it 
hypocritical to impose strict moral standards on the weak while constantly excusing the strong? Is it good or bad to use aggression to get what you want? Is it good or bad to use violence to get what you want? Is it possible to love someone that you are afraid of? Is fear the same as respect? These are all essential questions, which very few parents even bother to ask, let alone answer. What we all agree on. You'd be very surprised at how much everyone agrees on the answers, as long as the questions are clear. No one believes that it is truly virtuous to just do what you're told. No one believes that powerful people should be excluded from the moral rules they impose on everyone else. No one believes that it is good to use force or aggression to get what you want. No one thinks that hypocrisy is good. No one thinks that lying is good. Everyone is a peaceful parent in theory. It's only in practice that they so often lose control. If you want to be a personal fitness trainer, the first person you need to train is yourself. If you want to be a piano teacher, the first person who needs to learn piano is you. If you want to teach medicine, you have to learn medicine first. If you want to teach your children to be good, you must first become good yourself. That way, you can model best practices rather than hypocritically punish badness. Fat fitness trainers. If you had a chain-smoking, obese, personal fitness trainer, would you take what he had to say very seriously? If he was desperate to make you fit but had no credibility with you, what would he do? Let's say that someone was going to pay him a million dollars if you lost weight and gained muscle mass, and he had to do it right away and he also had to keep on smoking and overeating. How would he approach this task? Well, he would have to be manipulative and aggressive and bullying and perhaps even violent to get you to do what he needs you to do to get the million dollars. Because he is not fit, he has no credibility. And because he has no credibility, you have no respect for him and don't want to do what he says. But ah, oh, that sweet million dollars, he needs it so badly. This analogy is imperfect as all analogies are. Because you can openly say to a fat fitness trainer that he has no credibility with you because he's so unhealthy. Imagine an abused child saying to his raging parent, I won't learn goodness from you because you are a very bad person. Yeah, that kid probably wouldn't make it. It's certainly not worth taking the chance. Instead of focusing on how good your children are, you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself, how good am I? If you try to teach your children how to be good, but they don't believe that you are good, you enter into an endless, desperate, pitched battle where they try to escape your hypocritical rules and you chase after them, pleading, threatening, and bullying. You cannot teach what you do not model. You cannot model what you do not know. If you don't know what 
goodness is, and you don't manifest it daily, then expecting your children to obey you or be inspired by you is beyond ridiculous. It's pathetic, really. Physician, heal thyself. Peaceful Parenting and Ego There is a very strange phenomenon in the modern world. People say that becoming a parent robs them of their identity and they end up just doing everything for their children and have nothing left over for themselves. I find this bizarre on many levels. I've never sacrificed anything by becoming a parent. It's true that for about 10 years I didn't write any books. Before that, I wrote one or two books a year. But so what? I've been very happily married for over 20 years. It's true that after I got married, I haven't dated anyone else. But so what? Have I sacrificed anything by studying philosophy and striving to live morally? Sure. Of course, on occasion. The world is not overly friendly to truly moral men and women. But overall, it has been an enormous positive. I have also pursued a rigorous exercise regime for 40 years. Tens of thousands of hours spent sweating and grunting and panting. Has that been a tragic sacrifice? Compared to what? Compared to being overweight? Short of breath, low on energy, sleeping poorly, being unattractive to my wife and myself, losing 10 to 20 years of life? Please! If you only ever do what you want to do and view your chosen obligations as unwelcome intrusions on your glorious and infantile narcissism, then you are living lower than an animal. As parents... Birds are constantly flying off to get food for their babies. Mother whales breastfeed their calves underwater. Lions bring meat to their children. Gorillas carry water in their mouths for miles in order to satisfy their baby's thirst. And as a person, you are only alive because your parents endlessly deferred their own immediate gratifications in order to serve you and your needs, even if just your physical needs. Since you only live due to the sacrifices of your parents, living only for your own immediate pleasure is a straight-up theft of life. It is vampiric, predatory, exploitive. It's like enjoying the success you gained because your parents invested in your education then turning around and refusing to invest in your own children's education because you want to buy a boat. It's like being truly grateful that your parents left you some money, then burning up all that wealth on useless purchases and leaving your own offspring with nothing at all. The great chain of life that stretches back over four billion years has led to you your life, your capacity for love and thought and excitement and fear and achievement. It is an incalculable sequence of struggles and survival, all culminating in your existence. When you think of how many countless creatures had to fight and hide and reproduce and die, just to give you the incredible gift of life. Then never wanting to sacrifice for anything or anyone else is taking all the sacrifices that came before you and consuming them for your own selfish pleasure. Your ancestors struggled to bring you life so that you could continue their continuity. Parents have children so that those children will also have children. How many parents would bother having children if they knew in advance 
that they would never experience the joys of becoming grandparents and watching the bloodline continue. You are alive. You possess the great glory of existence on the grounds that you pay it forward and bring life to others, just as life was brought to you. Human life is the greatest gift in existence because we alone have the power of abstract thought and morality. Every other life form can only be, but we can be good. Every other life form has only virility. We also have virtue. We carry within us the divine whispers of conscience. Other creatures are merely programmed by lust and hunger and hormones to eat and sleep and reproduce. We are angels. Other creatures are mere machines of consumption and reproduction. We can create glories of art, philosophy, humor, and inspiration. Other animals can only blindly create more of themselves. You don't have to reproduce. Of course, 10% of married couples struggle with fertility, and that is a great tragedy. But we only exist as the result of millions of generations of death and struggle, going back billions of years. And you can, of course, be the only creature to break the chain and swallow whole the sacrifices of entire eons of pain and reproduction. But it is petty and ignoble to a degree that would leave your ancestors dumbfounded. Your ancestors survived plagues, famines, wars, ice ages, endless predation, death in childbirth, death from tiny cuts, to bring you, trembling and bloody-handed, the greatest gift of a life and a mind. I guarantee you that they would not have bothered to make those sacrifices if they knew that you would selfishly throw it all away for the sake of a little travel, some useless video games, some naked pixels on a screen for nothing. If you enjoy your life but don't give it your all to pay it forward, you are staggeringly selfish. If you don't enjoy your life, that is most likely because you are too selfish to have children. Your life is not just for you because you did not create your life. Your life exists for the continuance of life. Your life only exists because prior life continued. You're like a runner in a baton race. You take the baton in order to pass it forward, to pay life forward. Your ego only exists because your ancestors subsumed their egos to a larger purpose. The purpose of having and raising all those brave souls who led to you. The penultimate selfishness is consuming other people's sacrifices for the sake of your own vanity. Perhaps you have very pretty eyes. Do you know the billions of years of evolution, of survival and brutal natural selection that it took for you to possess eyes at all? Perhaps you are very smart. Do you understand? how many less intelligent people had to perish in order for your brilliant genes to flourish? Perhaps you have great reflexes and are good at sports. 
Do you grasp how many slower, less coordinated people got violently dumped out of the gene pool for your physical excellence to triumph? If a hundred older people sacrificed their lives so that you could survive some disaster, how would they feel if they could see you wasting the existence they died to provide you? What about a thousand people? A million? A billion generations? It is incomprehensible to me that people waste their lives. And there is no bigger waste than avoiding parenting. You are not sacrificing your ego by becoming a parent. You are fulfilling your potential. It cannot be possible that by creating a million egos in the future, your ego somehow loses out. If I took a dollar from you and gave you back a million dollars in the future, would you feel ripped off? Would you rail against my theft? That would be madness. The joy of creating, nurturing, and raising life is beyond compare. Taking a child from squalling infancy to rational adulthood is like raising a dead city from the desert and filling it with brilliant people. We can never be truly happy by selfishly exploiting the endless sacrifices of millions of people. Taking an infinity of hard-won gifts and then squandering them on our own selfish pleasures, what a shallow, ridiculous, petty and predatory existence. You don't have sexual desires for the sake of satisfying your ego. Such desires are for the sake of bringing brilliant new life into the world. For women, your youthful beauty has great value so that one man will be happy to fund the creation and survival of an entire family. It is not for you to bounce from one place to another having sex with strangers in return for a travel budget. Your beauty is not for you to get free dinners, free money, free tickets, subsidized apartments. The value of your youthful beauty is a down payment on motherhood, not a condo. And please, please remember this. Everything you think is free will have to be paid for one way. Or another. Men, if you give money to women who will never mother your children, you are corrupting both yourself and them. Women, if you take money from men that you would never consider having children with, you are mere prostitutes of opportunity, greedy exploiters of hormones designed for families, vampires of reproduction taking money without giving life. And, as you know, your youthful beauty will fade like the blue of the sky at sunset. And at the age of forty, men of means will inevitably turn to younger women. And you will face half a century of isolation, bitterness, and exclusion. There will be no turning back. There are no do-overs for female fertility. You will be abandoned, alone, facing an eternity of regret for choices you cannot fix. The special torture that awaits isolated women in particular will never let up, will never diminish, and will only end when you do. You see, nature is generally fair. Men have lower sexual market value when they are younger, but men have many more decades to choose to have children later. Men can fix youthful foolishness and have children even into their 70s. Not recommended, but possible. The door closes for women halfway through their life and never reopens. Sex is for making children, 
for pair bonding, for families. Not for vanity, lazy cash, and provoking envy. Women, you're supposed to gain resources for your children, not for another bikini and a trip to Bali. Hijacking the purpose of nature for the sake of satisfying your vanity will only and forever lead to misery. Everything you think is free has to be paid for. And the more you take, the more of your soul you lose. It is not a sacrifice to tame your ego in pursuit of a moral goal, any more than it is a sacrifice to tame your appetite in pursuit of good health. Gorging yourself on unhealthy food is the real sacrifice, and pleasing your ego at the expense of your happiness is the worst sacrifice of all. You don't give up your pleasures by having children. Children are one of the greatest pleasures in life. Life becomes both simple and pleasurable when you operate by easy, universal principles. When you get married, you become one flesh. You don't have separate desires or preferences or goals. You are a team, like horses pulling a carriage. Imagine driving a car and one of the wheels suddenly decides to go off in a different direction. You just wobble and crash, right? I understand that a husband and wife are two different people and preferences don't always coincide. But the idea that one of you can win at the expense of the other is madness. Can you imagine an exercise regime that strengthens your left arm but destroys your right? Can you imagine a diet that causes your left leg to lose weight but your right leg to gain weight? Of course not! You don't sacrifice anything by merging with the team that serves everyone's common goal. And what are the alternatives? You can live as less than an animal on the hedonism and pleasure of the moment. But everyone knows about the hedonic treadmill that pleasures diminish over time and often quite rapidly. Think of how exciting it was to get your first paycheck and then think how exciting it was to get your most recent paycheck. Quite a difference, right? Physical pleasures diminish over time, swinging to the negative if those passing pleasures have cost you meaning and virtue, slowly lowering you into the infinite hell of eternal regret. Chasing pleasure alone kills your capacity to defer gratification, necessary for physical health and spiritual love. If you can't defer gratification, you can't control your own emotions. If you can't control your own emotions, you cannot be loved, because you are too random to bring anyone trust and security. You chase hedonism and pleasure slowly diminishes into pain. But by then, you have often lost the capacity for virtue, integrity, love, trust, and meaning. Those, like me, who try to counsel you out of pursuing hedonism are actually desperately trying to increase your happiness. Like a dietician trying to get you to eat better so you don't get diabetes and lose your eyesight. When you're blind and hobbling around on one foot, you will think back on your candy and cheesecakes with rage and bitterness. All that was pleasurable in the moment has turned to the agony of regret. And all this happens when you still have decades to go in life. It is not a sacrifice to act sensibly in order to secure your own future happiness. 
If you get married, you dedicate yourself to the happiness of your partner, which means being happy yourself, negotiating for the sake of mutual benefit, living with integrity, being moral, staying healthy and attractive. All these good things. When you have children, you dedicate yourself to the happiness of your children because that ensures your own future happiness as well. You are not sacrificing happiness by serving your children any more than you sacrifice health by serving the needs of exercise and a good diet. If you dump your kids in daycare so you can run off to some job, you might make some money, but that money will diminish to nothing through inflation over time. And it will cost you the love of your children, since they clearly see that you chose money over them. Later, when you get old and sick and lonely, you will ask your children to choose you over their money by coming to visit you and taking care of you and helping you with the myriad challenges of getting old. They will choose their money, guaranteed, and you will be left alone. Maybe you will end up alone at the age of 75 and live to 85. That is a long 10 years. A long, lonely decade. And it could be a lot longer than that. When you are 80 and ill, and alone. What will you think of the paychecks you abandoned your children for 50 years ago? You can't buy love or companionship or family. You can't purchase people's desire to come and spend time with you. One day, you will be cleaning out your attic, because you have to do something, right? And you will come across your old pay stubs, or some spreadsheet you printed out, or some newsletter you wrote, staying late that night in the office and missing your daughter's first appearance in a school play. I guarantee you that absolutely everyone will have forgotten about that spreadsheet that newsletter, that diversity report. But your daughter will never have forgotten that you missed her school play. You dumped your children in daycare in order to please your boss. When you are 80 and you find your old pay stubs, your boss has been dead for decades. But your children are still alive and still remember. Your long-dead boss can't give you any praise or company. But your children can still condemn you. And probably do. The devil of temptation only reveals his price when it is too late to turn back. The costs of vanity only show up when restitution has become impossible. The symptoms of the worst illness only occur when death has become inevitable. Do you think you are getting away with anything? Everything is recorded. If you are religious, that is God. If you are secular, that is Unconscious, your conscience. Live for your children, which means having a life yourself, having independence and integrity, and you will never die. Live for yourself alone, and you live and die 
alone. Peaceful Parenting and the Voluntary Family If you are born into a crime family, do you have to stay a criminal? In the classic movie The Godfather, the main character, who has largely left the family, gets slowly drawn back into a life of crime, based on family ties and loyalties, and ends up as a murderous master criminal. Our lives are largely defined by our empirical answer to the following question. Am I loyal to virtue or to others? As the old song goes, you have to serve somebody, something, someone, some value or passion has to organize your day, your mind, your life. The days of animals are organized by the constant search for food, shelter, and reproduction. How do you choose what to do with your day? Your week, month, decade, your life? You and I were both born into families. The members of those families had specific moral or immoral qualities and gave us consistent and often ferocious moral commandments. The modern pattern of family history generally goes thus. A baby is born to busy parents. The mother cares for him in a hurried and harried manner while still fielding calls and emails from work for a couple of weeks or months, and then leaves him with someone else, sometimes a grandmother, often a daycare worker, and goes back to work. The baby exists in a state of low-grade existential panic since his biological and evolutionary needs, his desperate emotional needs, are largely ignored and rejected. He is often raised by people with different accents, different cultures, and no family or blood bond. Is it moral to give birth to a baby and then hand him over for others? To raise. No. Is it moral to get married and then have endless affairs? No. A husband who has affairs is cheating on his wife. A mother who goes to work is cheating on her baby. We get upset at the former but applaud the latter. This is entirely corrupt. Cheating on your baby is infinitely worse than cheating on your husband. The difference is that the husband gets to choose his wife. A baby never gets to choose his mother. A husband can choose to leave his wife. A baby never gets to choose to leave his mother. The husband is an adult with a fully formed personality and a near infinity of other options. The baby's personality is in the process of being formed, and he has absolutely no other options. A husband has full legal rights and an independent income. Babies can exercise no rights and have no alternatives. A baby and his mother are one biological unit, very similar to when he was in her womb. The mother's breast milk is deeply attuned to her baby's needs and by far the healthiest nutrition he can get. A mother has a biological monopoly on what is best for her child. No one and nothing else can substitute for her. Cheating on your baby is infinitely worse than cheating on your husband. And what lesson does it teach your baby? That family matters less than money. That serving economic strangers is infinitely better than deeply parenting your own baby.
that instincts mean nothing, that strangers' ambition and money mean everything, and that the weak must suffer so that the selfish can feel valuable. Why do new mothers go back to work so quickly? If they stay home even for a year or two, that is just a stronger bond to break when the toddler is left with strangers. A child's personality is largely formed by the sixth year of life. Babies left in daycare for 20 hours a week show the same levels of psychological trauma as babies completely abandoned by their mothers. In adult time, it's only 8 to 10 hours a day. In baby time, it is an eternity. Working mothers with little children experience the highest levels of stress hormones in the world. A baby whose needs are denied experiences the environment as extremely dangerous because, evolutionarily speaking, it has to be war, plague, or famine that is keeping his mother from him. Why do new mothers go back to work so quickly? Because of peer pressure. Because of propaganda. Because they have been told that being a mother is boring and unimportant, but that having a boring and unimportant job is essential. Because they are told that they are completely replaceable to their baby, but irreplaceable to their boss, to the economy, to their clients and customers. Because they are bribed with the spare change of their leftover salaries, after childcare expenses, extra transportation and clothing costs, endless taxes and deductions. Because they do what they are told, not what is right and good. They have placed the arguments and opinions of others infinitely higher than what is good and right and best for their babies. That is their choice. They are loyal to others, not their babies, not virtue. But a fascinating switch occurs later in life, a highly instructive reversal. When these mothers are young and ambitious and in control and want money, approval and prestige, then loyalty to others entirely trumps loyalty to family, to their babies. However, when these mothers age, and the fathers too, of course, suddenly family becomes everything. And their adult children owe them loyalty, love, time, attention, resources, and grandchildren as well. When their children are young, these parents choose loyalty to others over loyalty to virtue, the virtue of connected and peaceful parenting. But when their children grow up, now suddenly these parents demand loyalty to family over loyalty to others. While it might be true that when you were a baby, I chose loyalty to others over loyalty to you, now that I am old, you must choose loyalty to me over loyalty to others. This is a truly wild reversal. And the amount of propaganda piled up to cover this massive switch is truly astounding. Of course, this is scarcely an original observation. The famous Harry Chapin song, The Cats in the Cradle, traces this emotional journey. But he is a songwriter, not a philosopher, and so cannot exhume the moral principles at the root of this betrayal. Loyalty to virtue. So, are we loyal to others 
or to virtue. Is the word family a reasonable substitute for virtue? Is the word family a description of a mere genetic relationship, or does it describe a blood loyalty that has manifested in actual reality? Does the word parent refer to a biological relationship, or does it describe the act of parenting? Are you a parent if you do not parent? Are you a family if no one is loyal to kin? Does father mean sperm donor, or does it refer to the multi-decade time, emotional, and moral investment required to be a father to your children? Are you a mother if you don't breastfeed your baby and leave him for most of the day with strangers? Are you a parent if daycare workers and teachers mostly raise your children? (laughs) Well, duh. Is an open marriage a monogamous marriage? Of course not. Women often complain about the double and triple standards they are subjected to. But they would never be enslaved to these contradictory perspectives if they just put their children first. I remember one television sitcom where her mother, at work, memorably complained that when I'm home, I want to be at the office. When I'm at the office, I want to be with my baby. This was portrayed as some tragic existential crisis because of the women are wonderful psychological phenomenon of refusing to criticize the fairer sex. Can you imagine a philandering husband complaining to his mistress, When I'm with my wife, I want to be with you, here. When I'm here with you, though, I want to be with my wife. Can we imagine wringing our hands and nodding along with his tragic life and contradictory expectations? Blank slate. I want you to think of something. It's very important. I want you to imagine that you do not know your mother. I want you to imagine that you go to a dinner party and someone has invited the woman you know as your mother and she ends up sitting next to you. Over the course of the meal, you engage in conversation, listen to her ideas and thoughts, hear her describe her life, get to know her. Does she ask you questions in return or does she mostly talk about herself? Does she complain about her life or is she inspiring? Do you admire her or inwardly roll your eyes and wish you were seated somewhere else? At the end of the evening, would you look forward to seeing her again? Would you take her contact information and tell her it would be lovely to meet up again? Without your shared history, would your mother be a valuable addition to your life? What about your father? Pretend, just for a moment, that you have no history with him. Imagine you were going on a hike with a couple of friends, but one person dropped out and the man you know as your father was invited along. You spent a couple of hours on the hike in conversation with him. What does he talk about? Is he funny, engaging, curious? Does he ask about you or just talk about himself? Is he warm and authentic or does he brag and state a signal? What does he say about his life? Is he noble, virtuous, inspiring? After the hike, would you exchange phone numbers and hope to meet again? What would you think? of your father if you had no history? Would he be in your life if he did not raise you? Does he provide active value in the present? Or did you just spend 
unchosen time together in the past. It's a funny thing that adults think that there is ever a time that they can stop providing value and just coast on historical momentum. It seems kind of inevitable that parents who don't actually do much parenting or who are violent and aggressive claim that the category called parent is deserving of unending love, loyalty, and devotion. If their adult children resist their will, those parents say, But I'm your mother! Fair enough. Did you? Mother. But I'm your parent. Okay. Did you actually parent? Or did you wander off to make a few dollars? Then hit your children. Yell at them. Ignore them. Call them names. Did you dump them in terrible schools and let them be indoctrinated and bullied? Did you tell them to resist peer pressure while giving in to peer pressure yourself? When they were teenagers, did you help them find good boyfriends, girlfriends? Did you monitor their social circles to ensure that no creeps and criminals got through? Did you spend thousands of hours teaching them the skills necessary to virtuously succeed as adults? Did you teach them how to live morally or just kind of live with them under the same roof? Were you a parent or a landlord or a roommate? Where did your loyalties lie? With strangers? With propaganda? With manipulated social expectations? With money? With ambition? With your career? Did you ensure that your children were surrounded by good, safe, moral people? Or did you let dysfunctional relatives surround them and interfere with their moral development? If your daughter told your son to do something wrong, did you say that being good was more important than obeying blood relatives? Did you loftily instruct your children to serve virtue, not others, while then avoiding parenting by serving others, not virtue? You owe your children everything. That is the inevitable contract of reproduction. You owe your children everything. Your children only owe you justice. Justice is paying what you honorably owe. If you borrow a thousand dollars, it is right and just to pay it back. If you honorably invested in your children, they will enjoy spending time with you as you age. You won't have to force them, bully them, manipulate them, gaslight them, abuse them. They will enjoy your company as a plant enjoys sunlight, naturally, easily, inevitably. Those who never gave always end up bullying others when they want to take. Those who failed to invest in their children always end up bullying them when they want their adult children to invest in them. In fact, one of the main reasons that parents don't really parent is because they fully expect time, love, and resources from their adult children, no matter what. A thief does not bother getting a job because he knows he's going to steal. If you and your parents had no history, would they be in your life? Remember, we serve either virtue or others. In moral relationships, serving virtue and serving others is the same thing. Those around us will never counsel us to do evil and always encourage us to be good. 
those we have corrupt relationships with constantly counsel us to do evil under the pretense of doing good. Yeah, you go, girl. Go to work. Leave your kids in daycare. It teaches them social skills and also shows your daughters what a strong, independent career woman looks like. In life, the best strategy is treat people the best you can the first time you meet them. After that, treat them as they treat you. Babies, toddlers, and children don't have the first option. But they sure as heck have the second option when they become adults. We cannot reasonably complain about the immorality of the world if we constantly reward immoral people. Once you make a genuine commitment to virtue, your life becomes enormously simplified.